We're in the book of Acts this morning, um, Acts chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 13 through 20. Um, and so uh, as we read that, it's on the screen, and, uh, and, and you can follow along. I'm not going to lie. I had some kiwis in my bag that uh, I forgot about in my laptop bag. And uh, for people that will be listening to this online, um, they fermented. And I discovered them uh, this morning as I was pulling my Bible out, which was covered in fermented kiwi. And so my Bible smells like a kiwi beer right now. Um, And uh, it is a... it's not a pleasant smell, and now my hand smells like it too, and so I just lifted up my Bible to read, and I was like, ugh, this smell again. So that's fun. Um, anyway, uh, here we go. Oh, man. All right, so beginning in verse 13, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through through them is evident to all uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. Uh, We ask that you would help us to... um, Help us to have understanding here as we uh, look at your word. And ultimately, God, we ask that you would um, do a work in us that transforms us as we leave this place. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right, guys. So as we're jumping into things here this, this morning, um, one of my favorite uh, uh, shows in college, not that I would ever watch it or encourage you to watch it now, but in college, All the Rave was Chappelle Show. And um, Dave Chappelle, comedian, uh, turned into sketch comedy show uh, a guy. Um, he was consistently um, uh, doing these sketches. And in the, show, in the line of sketches, there was a, a particular sketch that he did uh, with a guy by the name of Charlie Murphy. Charlie Murphy, the late older brother of Eddie Murphy, um, turned out to also be a comedian and actor as well, was on the show. And so they did these series of episodes uh, called True Hollywood Stories with Charlie Murphy, where basically when they were shooting the show and they were on set, they would find that um, that uh, he would be telling these stories of his shenanigans running around Hollywood with Eddie Murphy and they sounded like they weren't actually true. But the stories ended up being so fantastical that they were like, we got to like, anim- like uh, illustrate, not illustrate, but act out these Hollywood stories. And so two of the most famous ones, uh, or two of the stories that they did uh, that turned out to be very famous sketches for Charlie Murphy was one, 
um, had to do with his ongoing beef with beating up Rick James. Um, and then the other one was the time that he ran into Prince at a, at a club and made fun of him. Uh, and uh, then ch- him and his friends challenged Prince and his friends to a basketball game and then ultimately lost that basketball game. Mind you, Prince was bedecked in full out, you know, like high heels and all the stuff that they were doing uh, during, during that, uh, that phase in the 80s and things like that. And so these stories would just kind of happen and you're like, no way this actually happened except for the fact that in the issue of Rick James, they actually brought Rick James when they're telling the story of all the times that he beat up Rick James um, for all the things that they did. In particular, I remember there was a time where Rick James went over to Eddie Murphy's, or Charlie, Eddie Murphy's house and uh, had tracked in mud on his, uh, uh, on his shoes and then kicked mud all over Eddie Murphy's brand new like white couch of which then Eddie Murphy and Charlie Murphy got into a fight with him about the whole thing. And they bring Eddie Murphy, or Rick James on, and he's sitting there going like, why why would I, I mean, they talk like these stories are true, like why would I track mud onto somebody's couch? I got more sense than that. And they'd be like, yeah, I remember tracking mud on that guy's couch. And so it's like, this thing actually happened. No matter how absurd it sounds or how absurd you might think that it actually is, this actually happened. And I say this as we look at the issue uh, before the, the, the early church and the early Jews in the first century. As the disciples of Jesus are talking about this pretty remarkable thing. That Jesus of Nazareth, the one that was crucified not long before, was actually no longer dead, but actually alive in the flesh, walking around and talking and doing things. And, and, and this led the disciples to go around telling people this and doing things, uh, powerful, miraculous signs in the name of Jesus. And ultimately, as they are doing these things, it necessitates some kind of a response. It requires a response that no matter how absurd it might sound, that the guy, remember, that we shouted that we want Barabbas over him, and so then we put him before the Romans, and they beat him and made him carry a cross and executed him and then threw him in a, 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 a tomb and then posted guards outside of it uh, with a giant stone to block the entrance, that that guy is no longer dead, and in fact, he's alive and well and walking around. We've seen him with our own eyes, and I'm trying to tell you that no matter how ridiculous you think that it is, uh, get up uh, and, and, and respond to this truth. In this particular story, as we get there, we're obviously picking up in the middle of it, but Peter and John uh, are walking into the temple to worship one day, and they see a man who has uh, been unable to walk for his entire life. And he's begging for money to, so that he can eat and live and do all those kinds of things. You see this story beginning in Acts chapter 3. Peter uh, makes this uh, incredible statement. Look, we don't have silver and gold. I don't have but such that I have. I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And this guy who could not walk all of a sudden now is walking. And it causes a commotion and people are astounded because it's the guy that's been uh, begging his whole life. People have walked by him day after day after day. They know who this guy is and now they can see the guy who was lame is now able to walk. And they begin to ask this question, how did you do this? 
And Peter and John testify to this. And they find themselves before the council. And now they're testifying about the fact that Jesus, the one that you guys crucified, is no longer dead, but is in fact alive. And it requires them to have a response. And so if we can, you know, just pinpoint this thing is that, look, the truth of the resurrection doesn't allow for indifference. It doesn't allow for indifference. You either accept it or reject it, but you're not indifferent about it. And much like the disciples had to uh, 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 make a decision about what they would believe when they literally saw Jesus in front of them, the Sanhedrin and religious leaders of the day had the same opportunity after hearing the testimony of Jesus to respond. And we too today have the opportunity to respond as well to the truth of the resurrection. So we're going to walk through these couple of verses relatively quickly. Um, and, and let's see what God has for us as we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So first of all, look at this. The resurrection of Jesus transforms those who receive it. This may seem like something that we know, that the resurrection of Jesus transforms those that receive it. It, it, uh, it, it would uh, seem to go without saying, but it is necessary to say and to emphasize what we mean when we see that the truth of the resurrection transforms those who receive it. In verse 13 and 14, uh, you, you see this very interesting uh, thing. It says, Sorry. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing, that, uh, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. This first verse 13 is particularly interesting because there is both, uh, for, the, for, the, for the Sanhedrin, there is a visual and auditory contrast that's taking place. So, like, we didn't get into it, but they make this incredibly, uh, Peter makes this incredible uh, impassioned defense of the gospel. I don't have this for you on the screen, but I'll read it for you uh, very quickly. In verse 11, uh, it says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the, builder, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no other, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He makes this incredible profession of faith. And they're hearing, and that's the tail end of this bold sermon that Peter is making. And yet, what we see uh, they're struggling with is like they're hearing what they're saying, but they're looking at Peter and John, and they're like, something doesn't line up here. It doesn't line up at all. Like, like, I hear the boldness and the confidence and the authority at which you're speaking, but you guys look like regular people. But the source of why they are changed is clear in what Peter says. It's because Jesus is the cornerstone and salvation is only in his name and they have put their faith in him and thus they are able to be speaking the way that they are. Now, the, the word boldness that they use here uh, in the Greek can, uh, is also kind of has this underlying meaning of confidence. 
So it's the confidence of their testimony that's standing out to the people listening. It's not just that they're testifying, Jesus is the way, Jesus is the way. No, no. It's the boldness of which they're speaking that gets the attention of the listeners. But it's not just that. It's this second part where it says uneducated common men. Now, oftentimes we'll read that, and because we don't always understand, we'll read that to mean that the disciples must have been illiterate. That's not what they mean. It's not an issue of being illiterate and uneducated. It's that that they were not educated uh, professionally in the religious uh, uh, way that the rabbis and things had been done. So what they're saying is, you guys speak like somebody who's been trained, but we know that you haven't been. It's not that you're dumb. It's not that you can't read. It's none of those things. It's that you're literally speaking as if somebody who's been to school and educated, but we know that you're not. So the question then becomes, how did that happen? And it immediately clicks to them because they recognize that they must have been with Jesus. The only way that you could be speaking the way that you've been speaking is if you've been around Jesus. And so the, God, the resurrection of Jesus and the truth, that fundamental truth that there is salvation in Jesus' name has literally transformed the disciples from who they were just a little while before to who they currently are at that moment. They have been transformed. And ultimately, Jesus is the key to this boldness. And what gets interesting, we talk about the truth of the resurrection. The resurrection is interesting because it is one of the most uh, 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 impactful things that has happened in human history. So much so that regardless of whether or not you're a Christian or not, if you're a historian and a scholar, you have to deal with the transformation of the disciples post the resurrection of Jesus. Gary Habermas and Mike Lycona, um, in their book, uh, A Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, say this. It says, they say, subsequent to Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples were radically transformed from fearful, cowering individuals who denied and abandoned him at his arrest and execution into bold proclaimers of the gospel of the risen Lord. Literally, there's a transformation that takes place. They're cowering and scared in one minute and yet find themselves bold and ready to die and actually do. Most of them end up dying afterwards. So the question is, what happened? They clearly believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. In fact, there's no other. uh, uh, This is something that's universally agreed upon, that the disciples actually believe that Jesus was no longer dead, but alive. Now, that's led people to all kinds of theories because the truth of the resurrection has to be dealt with. There's no indifference. And so some scholars who aren't believers will say that they must have lied. That is a particularly difficult uh, defense because they died. Who dies for lies? Maybe if you conjured it up and the first person died, you're like, that escalated quickly, didn't know that that was going to happen. But it's not just one All of them continue to die. 
And it's not just the 12 disciples that died. Actually, we understand that uh, by the time Pentecost happens, that there is something like 150 people in the upper room, these followers of Jesus. There are tons of people who've gone out and shared the gospel. Maybe, but when Stephen died, they're like, ugh. But they're actually, we see that the death of Stephen as the first martyr for the church emboldens them to continue to share the name of Jesus and his resurrection. And so it's, it's not that they lied. We've talked about this before, maybe around Easter time. Some people have led to believe that uh, maybe the disciples had some massive hallucination. They all just hallucinated the same thing. And in what we don't have time to dump into for today, but uh, the short version of it is today is to just say this, is that mass hallucinations uh, uh, are not a thing. There's no psychological evidence that supports the idea of mass hallucinations. And the closest things that we could come to it uh, 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 historically don't involve engaging multiple senses. In the resurrection of Jesus, we have people seeing the same thing, hearing the same thing, and touching the same thing. Nowhere ever in what we see in science reports that there's ever the possibility of mass hallucinations. And so, you know, if that's your thing, then, you know, you have, it's ironic, you're, in, you're engaging in the kind of faith that you're denouncing because your faith is in a psychological event that isn't possible. Or it's that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And they're testifying to the power of what happens when you trust in him. These disciples have been transformed. And ultimately, this is what we see, regardless of where they came from, their background, their education, their, their occupation, all those things. They don't look like what they've been through because they've been transformed by the power of Jesus. So the first thing is this. The resurrection of Jesus transforms those who receive it. The second thing is that the resurrection of Jesus exposes those that rejected it. It exposes those that reject it. We see in verses 14 through 18, which you can just generally keep it open because I'm just going to kind of generally summarize what's there, is that they, they reject it. They reject this truth. And in that rejecting of truth, they are exposed. They've been given this clear truth that we've just expressed in 11 and 12, that Jesus is the cornerstone and salvation is only found in his name because he has risen. And there's this interesting thing that happens. They reject the spoken truth. They've rejected these two truths, that Jesus is the, uh, uh, the, the, the only place where salvation can be found. But then they do this other interesting thing. Because they actually look at the man that's been healed in the name of Jesus. And they're like, yeah, we're going to reject that as well. Look at what happens here and what they reject. They reject the audible truth of what's being told to them. And then they reject what they see before their very eyes. Because they can see that the disciples are untrained and bold. And this is the highest court of the land. And these guys are in here. You know, like, like arguing before the Supreme Court, like they've been to law school and done this thing for years. This is not my first time before the Supreme Court. I'm, I'm acting like I'm some seasoned veteran. They're like, they're literally out there just laying out their case. 
And then they're bold enough in what Peter does to essentially say when he says that there's no other name under heaven or earth of which men can be saved, he's actually giving them the opportunity to respond. Like, I'm going to give an altar call to these guys, arguing before them like it's nothing. Incredibly uh, bold. Incredibly bold. Interestingly enough, we don't get into this per se often, but Sanhedrin is made up of two groups. Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees are your religious leaders. By the way, this is like a very high-level crash course on first century uh, Jewish politics. But you've got your Sanhedrin that has Pharisees uh, and and Sadducees. Your Pharisees are your religious leaders. Um, uh, Paul would have come out of this group of people. um, uh, And they actually uh, hold to the Old Testament. Um, And one of the key features of them is that they actually believe in the resurrection of the dead, that like people can rise from the dead. The Sanhedrin are more political leaders, and what marks them uh, is they believe less of, um, of, of the Old Testament, but that one of the key uh, things for them is that they don't believe. These were people that didn't believe in the literal resurrection of the dead. So they're more political leaders um, who, uh, they're you know, they're, they're, they're more logic or reason-based, and they reject the idea of the supernatural resurrection of the dead. And why is all of that important? Because some of the people in the room don't necessarily have a problem with the concept of the resurrection of the dead. They're just questioning whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. And others in the room are like, nah, that's crazy. That didn't happen at all. My worldview does not allow for me to believe that there's resurrection of the dead. But in this room, as they're talking, you see this. They can see that the disciples are changed. They can see that they're speaking boldly. They can see that a man has been healed, and yet they reject what's clearly in front of them. And not just that they reject what's clearly in front of them, they go so far as to say, not only that, uh, let's, let's rebuke you and say, don't you tell anybody about the name of Jesus. The same name that has helped this man that we've all walked past day after day and we know that he has healed. And these guys that were once cowards and, uh, you know, tripping all over themselves, now you're bold speaking. All these things we're going to reject and it exposes the faultiness in their logic. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I do have this for you. Um, Verse 27 and 28 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And so we see that God is consistently in this work of exposing the weakness of the world in the way that it approaches the concept of truth because... If your way of working out truth is only to go by what your hands can do and touch and feel and make sense of, that you're elevating the logic and reason of man, and what God is doing subverts that. So much, it's interesting. I'm a big movie and TV person. Um, and there's a particular uh, uh, movie that caused a lot of controversy um, in pop culture, and it's a movie called The Last Jedi. If you're a Star Wars person, um, which 
you know, we can all laugh, but those are billion-dollar franchises right there. Uh, 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 Star Wars is a franchise that is beloved, um, has made itself into or worked its way into the pop culture uh, uh, just, you know, uh, f- firmly embedded. You know, Luke, I am your father. Everybody knows these things. There is no, no try. Only do or do not. You know, everybody's like Yoda. He's amazing. Uh, who's got beef with Yoda? If you've got beef with Yoda, then you're the problem. He's awesome. And you see in this new show, The Mandalorian Grogu, who's like the Yoda equivalent, uh, you know, same species as Yoda. And it's all this kind of stuff. But the movie The Last Jedi was particularly interesting uh, because when they started this prequel, the, the new trilogy, sequel trilogy, which comes after the return of the Jedi and all that kind of stuff. Uh, There was all this hope and potential. J.J. Abrams gives us The Force Awakens, and they've set up all these storylines. And what happens from the opening moments of The Last Jedi is that uh, Ryan Johnson, uh, the director, uh, he's really known for like his uh, whodunit kind of like movies and things like that, like Knives Out. Uh, and so his approach to this movie was to like have a whodunit approach, which is really built on the idea of subverting expectations. You know, and, and uh, not going to lie, was not received well, uh, was not received well, because apparently Star Wars fans don't go to movies to have their expectations subverted. And it, what becomes interesting is that movie was so uh, uh, poorly received by the fan base that it is called, said to be the movie that actually broke Star Wars as a franchise. Uh, that from that moment on, it was no longer a bank that they could actually just rake in money and praise from fans. Uh, toy sales and merchandise, which was a huge part of the Lucas uh, film empire, completely tanked and all that kind of stuff. And it comes from subverting expectations. Now I say all that is because subverting expectations uh, can be good uh, and uh, at times can also be bad. Uh, Star Wars subverting of expectations, bad subverting of expectations. Uh, But what God does in subverting expectations is that he says, what is it that the world values? Is it your money, your prestige, your name, the place that you come from, all of those things? And whatever the world values, I'm going to use the opposite of that in order to shame wise and the strong. And in this moment, before the highest court of the land, God is using these disciples, these fishermen, and a lame man to subvert the expectations and undermine what the world values. So, we see that the resurrection of Jesus transforms those who receive it, it exposes those that uh, reject it, and lastly, compels us everyone to respond, compels everyone to respond. Peter makes this very interesting statement in verse 19, where he basically says this. He says, um, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak about what we have seen and heard. The onus ultimately is not on us to be quiet as Peter and John are saying, about what we know to be true. It's for you to respond one way or the other to the truth that's being spoken. It compels you to respond. If you reject the truth, then you're rejecting the name under which, uh, the, the only name in which people can be saved and have peace with God. 
And if you accept this truth, that you are now accepting the, the way in which to have peace with God. You know, this past week I was at Lifetime Fitness and I was having a conversation uh, with this 17-year-old. Last weekend, with, uh, working her summer job uh, in the cafe at Lifetime Fitness before going back to for senior year of high school. And this young lady and I are having this conversation. We're talking about faith. Uh, and it was interesting because she's somebody who grew up in and around the church and even went through confirmation and things like that. And she found herself at this point like, I know I did confirmation, but I find myself doubting. And if I were to say anything, I would say that I'm an atheist. And so she, we begin to talk about Jesus and the gospel and uh, whether or not, where do we get our concept of right and wrong from and ultimate truth, all this other kind of stuff. And I remember sitting there one, at, the, at the end of the conversation, I looked at this young lady and I just said, look, um, you may have grown up in and around church. You might have heard this stuff over and over and over again. But what I'll say to you is this, is that you ultimately have to make a decision like we've walked through the philosophical arguments for ultimate truth and all that kind of stuff, where it comes from. And I've laid out for you Jesus and all that kind of stuff. But you have to make a decision for yourself as to whether or not you'll accept that in the implications that it has for your life or reject it in the implications that that has for your life. And at the end of the conversation, I'd love to tell you that she accepted Jesus right there. And what she did say was, that's really deep. I really want to talk more about this. Uh, and I'm glad that you're willing to have this conversation with me. And I think that it's interesting. Because within that, in preparation for the sermon, I found myself at the same peace that Peter and John found themselves at. The truth of the resurrection compels people to respond, but your responsibility is simply to speak the truth of who Jesus is. And it's ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives for them to respond. For me, I hope uh, that that's a freeing burden for others in this room. I hope that frees you as well. And as we are ramping things up here in the weeks to come with City West Church and trying to launch and all this other kind of stuff, I hope that you're encouraged with the reality that it's not our responsibility to transform hearts. It's only our responsibility to speak the truth that we know that Jesus is Lord and brings hope. Look, our mission statement, we say this all the time. Several of you can quote this by heart, but we're lighting the way for diverse people to find unity in Christ. Like we're called to be salt and light we're not called to make the decisions for people. But in what God has called us to, we ought to be faithful and excited and bold to do what he's called us to do. Let's pray. God, we thank you just for this day and for allowing us to be here. God, we're grateful. Um, we're grateful.